Welcome along to this week's A Story to Tell with me, Richard Bobrasan. This week we have Mary Kite on the show. She's a focus puller, so someone that's behind the cameras. And we found out all about working on Death in Paradise in the Caribbean, going right back to working on the very first Harry Potter film. Hope you enjoy it. This is Mary Kite on A Story to Tell. So welcome along. It's Richard Bovesan here on Radio Bath, here till midday today. Uh, today, I've got a fabulous guest called Mary Kite. She's the first AC or focus puller on TV or film sets. Also a great dancer and a fab lady too. Uh, she's currently working on the set of Death in Paradise in the Caribbean. And I can see out the back, we're doing this via Zoom, I can see out the back palm trees. So Mary, first of all, good morning. And how is it in the Caribbean? Good morning, Richard. Well, it's very hot and very humid, and my thermometer outside is telling me it's 33 degrees in the shade. That sounds nice. We're, we're quite happy here today in that we've kind of got some, well, some grey skies, but at least it's not too cold. <laughs> it will get warmer. <laughs> Hopefully. So uh, which Caribbean island are you on? Uh, we're on the French island of... Um, Guadeloupe, which okay. is the uh, island for the fictitious island of Saint-Marie in Death in Paradise. Uh, and we all thought it was real. <laughs> the camera never lies. No, it is amazing, isn't it? We'll come to Death in Paradise a bit later, but it, it is amazing how many bad things happen in such a small place. I know, it's obviously not a safe place to be because there's a murder, it seems to be every week. Who would move there, right? Um, so, yeah, I mentioned your first AC or a focus puller. Um, I'll be honest, when I, I did the research about you, and there's lots online about you, Mary. I'm not sure if you were aware of everything. Um, I had to actually look at what look up what a first AC or a focus puller was. So tell us what exactly that means. Um, first and foremost, as the title suggests, um, it's pulling focus. So it means I'm keeping the uh, subject in focus all the time. So within the parameters of, of the shot. Um, also, it means interpreting the script because it's not always obvious where you might want the focus to be. So keeping certain things sharp at a certain time can convey a slightly different story. Um, I work closely with the camera operator and the director of photography and also the director uh, in the storytelling process. It's very much a teamwork thing. Uh, on a more practical level, um, essentially I run the camera department, the equipment, making sure that um, my team uh, looks after the equipment properly, that we have the right things at the right time in the right place. Um, so in a nutshell, that's that's the basic kind of role and function. And how long have you been doing it for? Oh, my goodness me, a very, very, very long time. Um, dare I say it, coming up to about 40 years. Blimey. Yes, I am time. that old. <laughs> I'm guessing it's changed over the years. Has technology changed much in that time? Oh, goodness me, totally, totally. Um, working on film, as in celluloid film, is completely different to working on digital. Um, it can be incredibly stressful um, because the parameters in digital are far more, or can be far more precise. 
Um, and these days with uh, incre increasingly demanding schedules, you don't really have much time for rehearsals. Um, so it can be a little bit stressful knowing that you've got to get it right every time from the very first go. And that can be quite tricky. Yeah, that does sound skillful. I've heard, so I was talking to somebody about it very recently and they said, although it's not that well-known a job from the outside world and it's kind of not necessarily that high profile a job, it's actually one of the most skillful jobs on set. Were they right? Can you say that about yourself? Well, of course I'm going to say that. Um, uh, certainly in, in film, because you don't know till the following day when you get to see what's called the rushes or the dailies, you don't actually know if you've nailed that shot until the following day. So um, in that respect, it can be, can be quite tricky because you've got to know whether or not you've got it right. Um, in a lot of other areas, if something's not quite right, you can get away with it. But if the focus is a bit sharp, and, and you'll see it sometimes, you know, when you have very minimal, what's called depth of field. So very little in the frame that's going to be sharp. It could just be one eyeball. You know, you, if somebody's slightly tilted one way, you can only keep one eyeball sharp. Um, so when you're dealing with somebody that's moving around with that amount of latitude for keeping it sharp, um, that can be very tricky. Um, and if you get it wrong, you can't use the shot. Whereas other things, if it's slightly wrong, you can get away with it. It might not look quite as nice um, or might not be perfect. Nothing's ever perfect. It's all about compromise. But certainly with focus, there is no room for compromise. And that's what makes it a little bit tricky and stressful. So um, have, have all films been ruined for you now because you're watching them with an kind of an expert eye going, oh, how's the focus on that shot? <laughs> um, to a certain extent, but mostly um, I just watch a film for the enjoyment of it. And to me, the sign of as a good film is if I'm not aware of the camera, if I'm not aware of the process, because I'm drawn into the story. So for me, that makes it a good successfully shot film. If I suddenly start to notice things and therefore I'm taken out of the story, then, then that, that's when it, where it's wrong. And for me, that is the whole kind of filming process and storytelling process. It's a bit like it's... a referee in football, isn't it? If you don't notice them, they're probably doing a pretty good job. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So you've been doing this for 40 years or so. So how did you get into it? Um, slightly through the back door. Okay. Um, I was already working at the BBC. Um, I eventually ended up in um, a department called Film Department, uh, in administration, I was what was called a film operations assistant, uh, whereby each uh, genre in, in BBC television, you'd have music and arts, drama series and serials, um, current affairs, open university, education. So as a department, we would do all the filming elements of those. So, so maybe the... Um, film inserts for a light entertainment show, for example. Um, uh, absolutely fabulous. Um, or other things would be full on dramas. So everything would be shot on film from our department. Um, 
for example, some of the things I did, which some people may remember, was uh, something called Our Friends in the North. Oh, yeah. It was quite popular. Uh, I did another series, a lovely John Mortimer series called, um, oh, God, my brain's gone numb there, um, called uh, Summer's Lease. Okay. Um, so all of those were shot um, all on film. So we did the whole story rather than just little inserts for studio-based stuff. Um, so that was how I learned about the equipment and the crewing and part of the process. So from there, I, I thought, initially thought I'd like to do that job, but I didn't think the lifestyle would suit me or that traveling around and being away from home doesn't suit everybody. And I don't know how or why there became a, a turnaround where I suddenly thought, actually, this is what I'd like to do. And this is what I think I would be good at even though there were very few women at that time mm. doing that. I mean, could count them on the fingers of one hand. Um, but I was suddenly focused, pardon the pun, that that was what I wanted to do. And I thought, I can do this. Uh, so cut a long story short, I went out, did my homework, went out with the crews on set, learned how to do it. Uh, finally got onto the uh, trainee scheme, the technical training scheme um to be a camera assistant even though I was told initially oh no surely you don't want to do that you know girls don't do that you know perhaps you'd like to go into editing mm. I said well sitting inside a box in four square walls seeing no daylight is not exactly my idea of a barrel of fun it suits other people it wouldn't suit me um so I I kind of did it against all advice really because I right believed I could do it so I did it that sounds good it sounds good so if somebody wanted to get into it these days then how, how would they go about it you know what there's an awful lot of luck I get lots of emails from people just graduating from university having done media studies doing media studies is it, it's an academic qualification it takes a certain kind of person to to work in our industry and to do what we do so i can take somebody from the street and within half an hour i can tell if they've got the right attitude and aptitude to do the job um a lot of it is personality driven um it is very hard to get into it but once you once you've got your first gig if you like then you're up and running. It, the hard thing is getting that that first gig as a trainee. Um, and the first thing to learn is how to make a good cup of tea or a cup, cup of coffee and be happy to do it and do it well. Because if you can't do that well, if you're an aspiring director of photographer, uh, operator, what have you, if you can't do that well, if you think that's below you, mm. then you are not going to make it as a DOP because you'll be always asked to do things that you don't like or are not happy with or you think is below you if you can't do it making a cup of tea you'll never do it at the top of the chain so if i wanted to come to you you're the right person to get a cup of tea then funnily enough probably yes because okay. even now if you want to do something do it well yeah. do it to the best of your ability do it so somebody will appreciate it 
And after 40 years of doing the job, are you still making the tea? Or do you have trainees now to do that? Well, funnily enough, uh, I always make my own cup of tea because I know how I like it. Um, but if I'm in a position and available to go and get a cup of tea or bottle of water or a cup of coffee from someone from of my team who's less able to get offset, I will happily do it. Fair enough. Now, as we mentioned earlier that technology has changed quite dramatically over the years regarding being a focus puller or a first AC. Um, how do you see it kind of evolving in the future and how much do you reckon that will affect how you do and what you do? Um, it is still, I would, I would say that the new, new technology is still a, a void of discovery. It has gone through uh, a period of evolvement. When digital technology was first started to be widely used, uh, a lot of people didn't really fully understand what a focus puller did. Um, and I think there were a few issues, should we say, then after a few years, I think people began to realize the value and exactly what a focus puller did and what they can bring to the job. So focus pullers then became more involved again. Um, there are a new breed of focus pullers. Uh, who are coming up, who can do what we call pull off a monitor. So they will actually look at, they don't even need to be in the same room as, as, as the camera and the actor. They are able to see the image on, on, on a monitor and keep it sharp from that. I have no, and they're very good at it. And I have no idea how they do it. The way I do it and any film, um, film trained focus pullers you will always be somewhere near the camera so you can assess the distance from the camera more specifically the film plane so it's where the image hits the film plane to the actor or the subject and you are always constantly judging that distance and you are reacting responding to the actor moving and the camera moving because sometimes they're moving at the same time. So your parameters are changing second by second. So you are you are keeping it sharp as you go along on the fly, as it were. And sometimes we do what's called winging it. So you might have a couple of reference points of a distance, and then you use that reference point to judge if somebody's getting closer or further apart. Um, and that's when you have to have your mojo and work on your instinct and intuition do you know what you say about winging it but um i think what other people would say is that skill so, <laughs> <laughs> it's two different ways of looking at it isn't it so yeah the, the winging it is actually where you're off script and you're not just having set parameters in place it's yes. more about using your judgment and your skill sets that you've gained over those 40 years to, uh, yeah. to actually make the shot work. Well, we're going to have a quick break for music, but when we come back, we're going to find out actually about where you are and also about Death in Paradise as well. We can't give anything away, I'm afraid, about the current series, but we'll definitely find out much more about Death in Paradise. So back with Mary Kite after this. Made locally in Bath, this is Radio Bath. 
Right, we're back now on Radio Bath. It's me, Richard Bowson, here until midday today. We've got Mary Kite, who is a focus puller, a camera... Can I call you a camera... What do you call it? Camera lady? Camera... Because it used to be camera man, didn't it? But you can't do that anymore, Mary. What can you do these days? Do you know what? It's never bothered me because um, camera man is a generic term. Yeah. So in the same way that mankind is a generic term. So I don't think it's gender specific in that respect, but whatever people feel comfortable calling it, camera person, camera yeah. assistant, I don't, it doesn't bother me. <laughs> no. Well, you work on cameras in yes. either film or TV. Let's go for that option, shall we? Let's go for that one. So you're currently working on Death in Paradise. You're in the Caribbean. As I mentioned earlier, I can see out the back. I'm not jealous in any way, shape or form. <laughs> palm trees out the back. I equally have palm trees in my garden. They're just not. Well, they are real ones, but they're not surrounded by 33 degree heat, unfortunately. So, uh, so yeah, it's not quite the same. Um, so how is island life in Death in Paradise? Not necessarily the storylines, because I know you can't tell us any of that, but how is it being in the Caribbean? Well, this will be my seventh season. Um, and for each season, I spend about six or seven months here. So in the last seven years, I've spent more time here in Guadeloupe than I have at home in Swindon. Um, it's, you are away from home, you are away from family, doesn't suit everybody, but this is such a beautiful island and the people here are so lovely and so welcoming and so friendly um, that it's just a lovely place to be. The side of the island we are, it's a tropical rainforest surrounded by the beautiful sea, waterfalls. I just love swimming in the waterfalls, hiking through the rainforest. Um, I know I'm making it sound wonderful. Um, it is. It rains a lot, but the sun looks quite windy as well. It can get quite windy, yes. Yeah, we do get hurricanes here and, and, uh, and um, tropical storms. So... It's uh, it's not always blissful. <laughs> and I'm but guessing that must, I'm guessing that must be quite difficult regarding filming. That presumably for continuity, if you have nice weather on one day and it's not nice weather the following day, you can't kind of carry on with that that shot. Um, yes, it's tricky. Um, and even uh, in the space of of one day, you'll shoot your master and your master wide shot in uh, beautiful sunshine. And then when you come to do your closer coverage, suddenly it's gone overcast or it's pouring down with rain and you have to wait for the rain to stop or um, just somehow get away with it. So yes, uh, continue. Well, it's the same in, in any country, it's the same in England. You always have uh, continu continuity issues with cloud and sun. So in that respect, it's the same here. People assume it's always sunny, so therefore it's easy to shoot. But that is definitely not the case. Well, it always looks sunny when we're watching it, you see. Well, that's yes, that's because you don't get to see it when it's absolutely chucking it down with rain, that you can barely hear yourself think the rain is that loud. So so Death in Paradise has been running for a number of years, as, as we've said. And... Uh, I kind of can't imagine how many people work on it. So you have the main actors, presumably, and then you have the crew that sit behind us. How many people actually work on Death in Paradise? Well, you know, I've never done a count. Um, in, in, in relation to a lot of other jobs, it's a relatively small crew. Um, so it's not a massive unit. 
we have uh, roughly half the crew are UK um, based crew and the other half are either French or Guadalupian based. So we have um, a, a nice mix. So oh, I don't know, a little wild guess. Um, apart from the apart from the actors, I would say there may be 60 crew, maybe more than that. So lots of crew are, are, are not on set. So for example, um, people that build the sets or or do what we call dressing props, they they always go in before the shooting crew and set everything up and then the sets are designed and so there's all the stuff that goes on behind the scenes if you like before we even get on set to shoot um, and then you get all the people in the production office that keep all the wheels turning and glue everything together so I'd say there's probably the same number of people on set as there are offset to make the programs. And how many actors are there on Death in Paradise? We have our main our main cast. Let me do a quick count. Uh, one, two, three, four, five. Yes, our main uh, regular cast are five. And then when we have our guest cast, uh, there's usually four, maybe five of them. So the, the protagonists, if you like, or the suspects, there's usually about four or five people um, that, that come over for a couple of weeks with us um to do their to do their bit yeah i suppose it has to be different uh, additional cast each time doesn't it otherwise it really is the strangest thing and that the same four people are being suspected of murders all of the time so of course yes yeah there's always a different, different storyline each uh, for each episode and i'm guessing across the years lots of different films and tv shows that you've worked on have all been quite different in regards to how like you might have big stars working on it and that are they kept separate and um, compared to the crew or kind of how is death in paradise is kind of the the main cast do they mix with the crew or are they kept separate how how's that um well death in paradise is 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 unique in in many ways that because we all know each other so well now um we all do socialize together but it's like anything each department you have certain things in common. So, you know, you, you might gravitate to other people in your department. But the nice thing about this job is there is a lot more cross-pollination when, you know, if you're out socializing or going on trips or dare I say, <clears throat> the odd party. Um, and and yes, we all, it, it is it's quite nice because the, 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 the banter on set is for me, you know, the most fun bit because it can be quite, yeah, quite brutal. Hopefully in a nice way, though. <laughs> we take I, I, the business. I mean, I'm ex-military and I was chatting to somebody the other day about that uh, a lot of military people really struggle to come into Civvy World because the the banter, as we used to call it in Civvy World, would be seen as being, let's call up HR. Um, I don't know if it's kind of a similar type of thing where you are. Um, I think so, because all my, my non-film friends, my dance friends, which... I'm sure we'll get on to later. Um, I always feel I have to temper my behaviour and my language until they get to know me well. Um, because, yeah, they probably can't get used to the way my mind thinks. <laughs> but you get is... used to it, don't you? You get used to saying stuff in a certain way. I mean, the old phrase of swears like a trooper. Um, again, when I was in the, uh, in the RAF, 
it used to be that people would swear almost every other word. And I said, we don't actually talk like this when we're around our wives and girlfriends. So why are we doing this when we're around each other? And I actually created a different culture for the time I was in and that we spoke what I would class as normally, not saying that nobody ever swore ever, but it was more appropriate rather than it just being a throwaway word in a sentence. So uh, yeah. I think everywhere is different. Definitely. Yeah, I think I think there is an element of that. I think there is um, uh, not not having been in the forces, but I think there is a, a certain uh, similarity. Um, again, especially when you're away, you're you're away from home. You know, all the people you're seeing are are the people that that, that you're working with. So they become your family, you know, like it or not, or maybe a dysfunctional family, um, but they are nonetheless your your family, and you are thrown together. Uh, for that period of time. Now, you mentioned parties earlier. I, I can't let, it, let you get away with that one. Um, <laughs> is is there anything that's happened that's not necessarily public knowledge that you're not going to get in trouble for, that you could tell us about anybody that people might actually know that they maybe didn't know about before? Any well, funny do you, stories? Do you know what? This is actually going to sound very boring. Maybe many decades ago, when things were slightly different, there might have been things happening that maybe should not be published. Um, but these days, it's just it's just letting off steam, you know, because during the week you work long, hard hours in a pretty brutal climate. So it's just a decompressed time. So that may sound terribly boring. No. Yes, people do maybe have a little bit too much and maybe end up in a swimming pool or slip it in well or oh, your memory's yeah. going no, i can nothing, see when... nothing i have to say there's nothing totally outrageous no <laughs> fair enough fair enough um so what does a typical day look like in death in paradise then um okay the the process uh will turn up the director will have uh, what's called a line run with the actors. So they will just go on the set and just sit down and do a line run of the scene we're about to shoot. Then they will block it, a private blocking between themselves to work out how they want to play the scene. Then they will call us all in for what's done a crew show. So we all get to see and get an idea of how the scene is going to play out, where everybody's going to be. Then the director of photography will light the scene um, for how he's seen where the where we've talked about where the camera positions are going to be, what the coverage of the scene is going to be. And so we have to light for that and then rig the camera, maybe lay lay tracks for a tracking shot. We do we do, do a lot of tracking shots on Death in Paradise. Um, it seems they like to see the, the camera moving and developing quite a bit, which is very much the style of the show. Is that almost like the train tracks that we see sometimes of people, yes. the cameras moving across? Yes, exactly. Um, so we have the camera quite often mounted on, on a dolly. Um, a lot of other shows might uh, have the camera handheld, which is a completely different look, but very much the style of, of Death in Paradise seems to be... Um, keeping it on, on a dolly and, and moving it around. <clears throat> that, that may change, you know, a lot of shows change and develop their style um, over the years, but, but that's the way it is at the moment on Death in Paradise. Um, then hopefully we get to rehearse on camera. And if everybody's happy with everything, we then go for a take. 
Um, How long would that that process take then? Um, it depends on the lighting. Sometimes the lighting can take a short amount of time. Sometimes it can take quite a while. It maybe it could take twenty minutes or up to an hour. Um, uh, it, but it actually all happens pretty quickly. Uh, it's quite good that everybody knows what they're they're doing and are very experienced. And our team of uh, team of regular cast are brilliant. They are so easy to work with, and they haven't paid me to say that. Um, but they are they can embrace short notice changes and incorporate it within their characters. Um, and they are just a dream to work with. So easy to work with. And if they hear me say that, I just hope they don't hear me say that because it will just go to their head. Oh, you never know who listens to these types of things, Mary, I'm afraid. <laughs> so uh, so what, what's your start time in the morning then on a typical day? Uh, on a regular day, uh, our hours have changed slightly this year because there is a new union agreement in place, which is lovely. Um, but uh, regular hours, certainly on this block, we work from, well, what we call a unit call is 7.30 in the morning. Other people start earlier than that to be to be ready to get all the to get all our camera gear in or makeup and costumes start earlier to get all the actors ready. But then we should all be on set, ready to work as it were at seven thirty in the morning. And hopefully nowadays we finish at seventeen thirty in the evening. But that's with a half hour lunch break. So a long old day then. It's quite a long day. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, if we're shooting night scenes, then we will start later in the day and, and yeah. finish later in the day. No. Sounds amazing. Now, after the break, we're going to come back and talk about a project that you and I worked on together where Mary was actually front of camera. So uh, we're going to be talking about that when we come back after this. Radio Bath, made in Bath. Right, we're back with Mary Kite, camera person, we've decided now, first AC and also wine drinker. She's having some wine as well, which is all good. Uh, so <laughs> it seems early in the morning, but we're all good for that. Right, now we're gonna talk about a project that we worked on together. Now, many years ago, uh, myself and Zoe, my wife, we were asked to do a project for a Christmas video for a song, which was called Winter Wonder, which I'm gonna play after this little link that we're doing right now. And Mary was one of the dancers that we chose to come and dance with us. We had 30 dancers in total and we choreographed loads of different dancing to go with this. So my first question for you, welcome back by the way, is how was it being in front of the camera instead of being behind the camera? Well, I have to say that was such a fun day. Um, apart from it being pretty cold that day, I remember my feet freezing, um, but it was, it was such good fun. I mean. I knew the process, of course, um, but being the other side of the camera, by the end of the day, I was, the adrenaline was still going and, and I was buzzing. Um, and, and I did actually have an appreciation for how valuable muscle memory is because it's, it was a long day and we all got very tired. Um, and yes, you know, feet were cold and what have you. But every time they said turnover, you were immediately in that moment in character. I'm no actress, believe, believe me, I'm a terrible actress. But in that moment, I went into the character, if you like, I'd invented for myself. Mark and I, Mark, my wonderful dance partner, 
we decided what characters we were going to be. Um, so every time they said turnover, the smile was there, the face lit up, and um, it actually got easier with repetition rather than getting more and more tired. You were straight into the moment, um, which I found was not surprising, but just an interesting observation that I thought, yes, it, it is possible to do this. Well, for um, those that haven't it, seen it, sorry, for those that haven't seen it, it's um, it's everybody was in Victorian gear. Um, I remember I had Rupert the Bear trousers on, um, <laughs> which was which were always very strange. And, and Zoe, my wife, had on the weirdest hat you've ever seen in your life. Um, but yeah, I mean, one thing that we remember from that day is just how amazing all of the crew were, as in how many the crew that we were working with for our dancers. You know, we had 30 people we were choreographing, we practiced beforehand. Um, but the teamwork that everybody put in there meant that it was still to this day one of my favourite days of my life. Um, I don't know if you feel very similar or not. Oh, goodness me, yes. Uh, it was such a blast. And yes, I, I, almost, I, can, I, I can relive the whole day practically. Uh, yeah, it will always stay with me. It was such a good day. It was such a good day. And the video has been seen well over a million times now as well. Um, wow. Which is always quite a weird thing to think you've been watched that many times. Um, and it's a really good song as well. Um, it's lovely. It's heart. It's a lovely, heartwarming song, and it, it was a, a period piece as well. So it yeah. was just lovely, a lovely little piece of of, of theatre. Yeah, and it was filmed in Bath as well, which was which was all good at the uh, Tithe Barn in Englishcombe. Um, they converted it for the day, put a massive Christmas tree up, and uh, yeah, if you want to look at it, it's Florin Street Band, F L O R I N Street Band, and it's Winter Wonder not winter wonderland but winter wonder now i have a memory of you mary which we've known each other for a long time and I, i've never said this to you and i thought i'd say it live on air okay and that i remember a memory from the winter wonder day of i was trying my hardest to dance away and i saw you stop and i saw you stop and like what's she stopping for and i then very quickly realized that the camera had passed us and there was no point because the camera wasn't on us anymore. But I'm still there giving it everything, even though, of course, the camera had their back to me and they didn't, they weren't watching me anymore. But you knew, because you obviously have your job. So on the day, how much were you analysing kind of everything that was going on and thinking, oh, I don't need to try anymore, or I do need to try? Do you know what? I, I can't remember doing that at all. I mean, yeah. it certainly wasn't a conscious thing that I was doing. So, yeah, maybe it was just... Because I'm so used to the process. Absolutely. That you know that that in my peripheral vision, I'm, I'm if you like aware of, of of what's going on. Although I wasn't always. If I was unsure, I'd make sure I'd stay in character, stay yeah. dancing. So what were your characters then? Oh gosh, um, we decided that Mark, because he had that that kind of posh hat, that he was um, a fairly well-to-do dandy. And 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 I was I was not exactly a scullery maid, but a, a lesser kind of uh, uh, in terms of class structure. I was a, a lower class person that he was having a little bit of a fling with. No, one of the really nice things they did on that day as well is they did a making of it too, um, which was always nice. And I I had the uh, one of my dreams. They do this on Strictly. They show the rehearsals of something, and then they kind of do the split shot and then they go across into actually it being done live. And uh, yeah, I was really, 
fortunate that we were because myself and Zoe we were kind of I suppose the two main lead dancers on it and uh, yeah they did quite a few of those whereas this is how we were doing it in rehearsals and then flipping through it on the main thing so that was always one of my uh, dreams come true I suppose to have that done to me so well I think and I think you've both did a splendid job uh, and in such a short space of time as well that, that you yeah you created something really nice and you both look stunning on the day even if you were wearing Rupert trousers I, I you know we really enjoyed the day we, we were shattered afterwards for about a week um it took a lot out of us but yeah genuinely now we look back and it was such a great day um so yeah do check it out on youtube it's winter wonder by florence street band as i said i'm going to try and play for you now so i know we're in may 2023 but there's nothing better than hearing a christmas song right now so uh so yeah here comes florence street band and winter wonder
This is Radio Bath. Right, we're back now with Mary Kite, camera person, who's currently in the Caribbean shooting on Death in Paradise. But now we're going to talk about a passion and a love that we both share, which is dancing, of course. So for those that don't know, I'm a dance teacher in my normal job, as well as, of course, hosting the show on Radio Bath. Uh, but Mary's also a fantastic dancer as well. So what what do you love about dancing, Mary? Um, to be honest, I would say it's my raison d'etre. Um, as, as a child, I would always borrow my dad's classical records and put them on the record player and dance around the room, as long as nobody else is around, uh, as a lot of us would do. Um, I had to dance for when I did gymnastics. Um, but again, I was a very shy dancer. Um, and I think I've always been like that, but but dancing has, has always been a love. And I always love the idea of partner dancing where you can create something, create a dialogue, create a dialogue with mu with music as, as part of the picture. Um, and then when I found out about initially uh, modern jive, I learned modern jive to learn to dance with 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 a partner and have a conversation with a partner and hear something with a partner. Um, since, since then I've, I've, I've learned other dance styles as well, uh, all to the same end. So so dancing is always, and I think always will be my, my passion and raison d'etre. It doesn't mean to say I'm particularly good at it, but it is just something that brings joy as well as frustration. <laughs> We were discussing off camera just a minute ago about how much I personally enjoy dancing with you. And I'm not saying that just because you're sat in front of me, although sat a few thousand miles away, but uh, you are sat in front of me. And I genuinely do really enjoy dancing with you. And, and what I love dancing about with you is that um, is that it is what you mentioned a minute ago, a conversation. Lots of uh, lots of leaders or men try and kind of give a lecture and they say you know as a follow you simply just follow whatever i'm doing but what you do is you have a conversation with your partner a dance conversation you're not necessarily saying what are you having for dinner later um it's a <laughs> dance conversation that you're having so how do you feel about doing that side of it rather than just simply following um it, it depends it depends who you're dancing with um for certain people they are so for certain leaders they are only ever comfortable leading what they have in their mind and what they've planned and you have to respect that and therefore you're a dutiful follow if you do try and um, insert some kind of interpretation of what you're hearing the music then it should be in my mind should be quite subtle because it can throw the leader and therefore spoil the dance for them um, but sometimes it's good to kind of push your partner a little bit uh, in the same way that it's quite nice if my partner can push me a little bit and introduce a new element to the dance or the concept. Um, but the, the most fun is when you're both hearing a piece of music and bringing something out of that music into the dance you're having together. That, that for me is, is, is the joy. It could be naff, it could be stupid, but my God, it's so much fun. Absolutely. It's it's very strange philosophy, but I often talk about the fact that leaders are actually in charge, if it's kind of there's some space there, of only about 20% of the dance. 
and the follows are actually in charge of about 80%. Because in the main, when you get to a certain level anyway, the leaders ask the follows to do something at the beginning and the end of the slot, and the follows interpret or embellish how it's done right throughout the slot, which equates to about 80% of it. Um, but most people aren't aware of that. Well, yes. I mean, the, yeah, the theory is that, that, that the leader will introduce a direction from A to B, if you like, and therefore it's the follower that decides how they get there on that journey. So, so the, uh, the, the leader uh, initiates the journey and then the follower develops that journey. That makes sense. I'm not sure if that's the yeah. No, that's that's exactly it. what it. That's exactly what it is. But most people think that you know that old phrase that if, if it goes wrong, it must be the the man's fault or the leader's fault. Couldn't that's really rubbish. be further from the truth. Yeah, total rubbish in my opinion. <laughs> we, we used to wonder why we were thirty ladies over all the time, and you know we're we're bashing these poor chaps, saying you know you don't know what you're doing, and then if it goes wrong, it's all your fault. Um, oh my goodness, I have huge respect for leaders because uh, when I'm when I'm leading. Um, it's um, I should do it more often I should practice more often um because half the time I can't remember the vocabulary if you if you like so the number of moves or you know the number of words in, in a conversation um but I have huge amount of patience and tolerance for leaders because I know just how difficult it is and therefore it's always important to encourage leaders and and to, to make them feel comfortable and more confident and to to, to make to give them a good experience in their dance because then they'll go away and they will come back and they will they will they will learn and get more enjoyment from it and if they enjoy it i enjoy it now mary re remind us which island you're on again guadeloupe guadeloupe how is the dancing in guadeloupe ah um i did uh, a couple of years ago i i did start my own dance class okay how did that go <laughs> uh with some success, uh, it was a good learning curve for me in terms of teaching because I, I did slightly alter my teaching style from people I'd learned from in terms of teaching. Uh, and and I, I did find a, a system which, certainly for absolute beginners, uh, which seemed to work very well. And I, I had my little group in my class and they would say the time went so quickly they were always come out laughing, they'd forgotten about work, and they had good fun. And to me, whether or not they came out as dancers is, is, is irrelevant. Um, if they enjoyed themselves and stepped away from work, then that, that, was, that was my job done. Um, but, other, but it's very tricky because the hours we do are unpredictable and everyone is so tired, my, myself included, trying to put together a lesson plan um, uh, when all you want to do is just have a lie in and sleep and rest um but having said that of our crew when there is a party if there is music playing they will dance they will dance quite wildly which is lovely to see um it's not necessarily partner dancing but they just dance and they're having fun and letting go um, that's the great thing about dancing isn't it is that um i was chatting to a, a friend of mine recently who was kind of not feeling wonderfully happy and i said well, come along to dancing. This was at Bradford Avon on a Monday night. And I said to him, you know, come along for three hours. You are surrounded by people who are just there to enjoy themselves. It's a happy place to go to. Um, and wherever you go dancing, like if you're at a party, for instance, and your people are dancing, they're just happy. And you, 
you feel that kind of love of happiness, which is, uh, I think, one of the only things that, you know, dancing is definitely one of the things that gives you that. Mm -hmm. so, um, so, yeah, relating to, to dancing then, what's your favourite type of music to dance to then? Oh, good God. I would say so, so eclectic. It could be classical music. It could be uh, R&B. I do quite like R&B to, to dance to. Uh, something really funky. Maybe not so much power ballads, um, but pretty much anything. And um, most of all, I enjoy dancing to something I've never heard before. Okay. Why is because, that? Then? Because you're reacting to what you're hearing rather than the knowledge of what's coming next in the song. You you you're going along with the music. Yeah. Rather than trying to predict the music. Does that I make kind sense? of have a both of that. I, I like dancing to stuff I haven't danced to before. Equally, if I have too many of those in a row, I then get a bit uncomfortable. So I'm like, I just need something I know so I can kind of go back into a little bit of comfort zone and then feel like I know what's going to happen so I can interpret it better. I think that's probably different. Yeah, it's different for a leader to a follower. As a follower, I'm just responding to what I'm feeling from my leader and also what I'm hearing and feeling from the music. Yeah. Um, now, you used to do competitions as well. Are you planning on doing more competitions when you come back? Um not really. I think I have a love-hate relationship with competitions. Why is that then? Um, partly because we, we were just chatting earlier about imposter syndrome. So mm. I do have a bit of imposter syndrome in my job, even though I've been doing it nearly 40 years. Um, I also have it as a dancer. So that is probably not good when you're going onto the competition dance floor if you don't believe in yourself. So if you don't believe in yourself, nobody else is going to believe in you. The only times when I have done well or felt happy with what I've done on the competition circuit is when I've stepped away from that and almost um, become somebody else or developed a character. I feel like I've, in my head, I've pretended I am a dancer, um, in which case, then you believe in yourself and you dance with the heart and you put it out there. And those are the occasions when I've actually done quite done well and had a good result. But as soon as you lose that, if you don't believe in yourself, then nobody watching you is going to believe it. Um, and, and, and I would probably give that advice to any anybody. And I just wish I could take my own advice <laughs> more often. Um, because maybe, you know, you don't have to be a great dancer to be, you know, you don't have to be a technically great dancer, I think, to do well. You just have to be a passionate um, and believe in yourself dancer. Um, I'm just going to dive off at a tangent here. Um, mm -hmm. because I had um, a, a ballet teacher tell me that, for example, two of probably the, the most famous ballet dancers in the world, uh, Nuria van Fontaine, Mm -hmm. that, that that she said to me that they're not they're perhaps not the best technical dancers that were around but the chemistry and the passion that they had between them in the dance was what transcended the technical ability um 
and I and I've always remembered that, and I think that's 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 very true. You you have to dance with with the heart. Um, Do you know, I've given that I've given that advice quite recently to a number of people to dance. I used to ever so slightly different to dance from your heart. Um, yes. So I, I talk about that from a technical level in regards to if you move your heart backwards, then your body and your arms would then follow, and there'll be a reaction to your body moving. But also having the connection with the music. So you're just one with the music, but also with your partner and kind of having that same connection. And then all of those three things together should make it work. Oh, that's an interesting point about, as you say, dancing from with from the heart. So that that's where the motion, the, the motion of the body is generated from. That's a very good. Yeah, one. so I use that. But regarding imposter syndrome, just a little story for yourself is that uh, if ever I have to do anything Latin, then rather than saying it's Richard from Portsmouth, a bit like Kevin from Grimsby from from Strictly, uh, <laughs> I always put on Ian Waite's hat, so ex Strictly dancer Ian Waite, and uh, I always just immediately imagine that I am him, and then all of a sudden the arms and everything, the body, the shoulders start to move, and uh, off I go. But yeah, I'm, I'm Ian Waite when I do my Latin dancing, uh, <laughs> rather than Richard from Portsmouth. <laughs> so, but yeah and the other tip i always give to people actually so in my little studio at home we've got big mirrors and uh, i always say to them chop your head off so if you look from the shoulders down then you can actually analyze everything that's happening as soon as you look at your face then all of a sudden you become very self-conscious yes so yeah, uh, so yeah there a lot of tips in the dance world isn't it it's all good but uh, what's the best tip you've been given then or given yourself even well I think probably what, what I was just talking about a moment ago, and yes, I, I, I wish it was a tip I could take on board myself, which is to um, just be, yes, be in the moment and, 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 and dance, for the, dance with the heart. Um, and it's just you and your partner and the music. And if, if that's all you have to worry about, then you're just you're just in that wonderful bubble that may last for three minutes, but it can be the most magical three minutes for quite a while. I mean, I've just had the odd dance over the years, which will always stay with me because at that moment uh, it was perfection. I mean, it may not have been perfection to watch, but in my mind, that what I had with that partner and the music was absolute perfection um what what could be better than that so if you can put your mind into that mindset um then the world's your oyster i'm sure and dancing is is simply amazing and for a lot of people they struggle to either go there or stay there when they get there but once you get past that moment of it's actually quite easy to do then as you say you kind of get that connection to the world which is which is amazing well, we're gonna have a bit of break from music uh, when we come back we're going to start talking about a few of the past projects that you've worked on as well before of course nobody forgets the all-important quick fire round to finish so we'll be back with merry kite after this this is radio bath so we're back with Mary Kite. It's Richard Bovis. I'm here until midday today on Radio Bath. We're going to talk about some of your past projects. You're currently working on Death in Paradise. We're going to go back to kind of over 20 years ago. And people won't be aware, of course, because they don't necessarily look at this. But I had to look at IMDb and type in Mary Kite. And up you came. And it came up with all of these different things that you worked on. And I even messaged you, didn't I, to say, I'm just checking this is you. Because you've worked on so much. Yeah. And it was kind of weird 
you were on IMDb, but there we go. And um, one of the things you worked on many, many years ago was the very first Harry Potter. So how did you kind of get to be on that and how was it? Um, I have to say it was a great privilege to be on the first Harry Potter. There was a lot of um, uh, excitement about it. Um, uh, it was, it took uh, a large part of that year. I think I was on the job for about nine months. Um, so it, it was very exciting because there was a sense of, well, there was the cloak and dagger um, element of it. So we weren't allowed, we all, uh, uh, all the scripts were couriered to me rather since through the poster uh, and I had to sign for them. Um, everything that was unused, we couldn't throw anything in the bin. It all had to be destroyed and shredded. Um, so there was a lot of cloak and dagger secrecy. But we were all very excited because we knew that this was going to be something big and something special. And I remember when somebody brought on set the, the first, um, uh, they proposed, they composed piece of music for it. And we all had to listen to it. And we thought, oh, wow, this is great. This is and you know, it's a fairly iconic piece of music there. But it was so exciting at that time. And it was before the big Harry Potter machinery, the Warner Brothers Harry Potter machinery had kind of kicked in and, and made it into the, the, the product that, that it is now. So all the young, you know, all the young actors, um, you know, Dan Radcliffe was just, you know, a young boy. He was tiny, wasn't he? He was, yeah. Um, and I worked with him some years later um, after that. Um, so we're remembering when, when you know, how he was then, and, and you know, then I worked with him as a, as an adult, um, and in many ways he hadn't changed. He can talk for England. <laughs> he loves to chat, um, but he was such a nice boy, uh, such a nice man. His his father was his chaperone, and he made sure that that he wasn't isolated, if you like, you know, or, or you know, shut away from everyone else, you know, the crew and on set. So he was very much, um, his father made sure that he saw his school friends a lot, that he mixed in with all of us on the crew as on set um, and, and gave him this kind of level because it's such, you know, as a young teenager, it's such an important time of your life. So so I, I, I give his father and Dan himself credit for, for staying, staying, you know, a very balanced and a real person because you know this industry can do weird stuff they can turn normal people into monsters and you think you weren't born a monster you know but you know often we can create these monsters by the way they are treated that's probably being a little bit um probably maybe touching a few nerves there i don't know but this is just no. my this is my observation of, of the industry. It's really difficult, isn't it? When you are a star, I suppose, then quite often what you'll have is a lot of people around you telling you how great you are all of the time. And therefore that will go to people's heads sometimes. It's inevitable. Yeah. You know, certainly if yeah. you're if you are a type of person that requires to have all of that fame given to you and that kind of appreciation, then it it can change you. I would have thought. Yeah, yeah, and and you're 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 treated differently, so therefore your perception of of reality, normal and normality, be, becomes different. Um, and it's it's so nice when, if you like, you work with big names, and 
and they haven't been sucked in by that machinery, if you like, that turns them into people that they're not or people that they they certainly weren't when they were you know younger or when they were kind of new in the industry. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people, they often see stars and then go, oh, they're just a, a normal person. Um, so somebody that both you and I know, Mike Edwards, um, people know him as Eddie the Eagle. Uh, yeah. He comes dancing all the time and and we all yeah. know him as Mike. And then um, people then come up to him and say, can I have your autograph? I'm like, not to me, to Mike this is. And yeah. uh, I'm like, why do you want his? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Of course, he was a ski jumper. Um, yeah. But you kind of forget that. And he's a normal person. Um, yeah. Kind of, I suppose you've come across across the acting world, lots of people that are still normal people. And as you say, some people that have kind of let it change them somewhat. Mm. So. Uh but also a, a lot of people have a, a reputation that goes ahead of them. And then you find out, well, actually that reputation is, is nonsense or it could have built out of something fairly inconsequential. Um, I, I've often worked with people who have been difficult. And then when you work with them, you actually find out, well, they're not difficult. They're just normal people. They just get you know, annoyed or frustrated by the same kind of things that, that any of us do. But for some reason, they, they kind of get, you know, they get a reputation for being difficult. Well, it they're is amazing difficult. what people they say. So as I say, they're not being difficult. They're just people who don't suffer fools. Mm. And it is difficult because when you are famous in any way, shape or form, then people will talk about you. Now, I say I'm a dance teacher. I'm not famous by any stretch of the imagination. But, you know, when you are on stage all the time, people inevitably talk about you and they make up a number of different stories and apparently every person that's been on stage with me has been my wife um which over the years has been about 40 of them <laughs> so yeah i've married all of them um across the years uh and it's like wow okay um so yeah proper big stars like dan radcliffe all the stories you hear about him probably about a tenth of them are true <laughs> but as they say never let the truth get in the way of a good story Oh, I've uh, yeah, let's move on from that moment. Um, <laughs> now, something else you used to work on uh, was pole dark as well. Now, that's famed for Aidan Turner being topless half the time. Did, did you work on those scenes and how was his toplessness in real life? <laughs> um, do you know what? To be honest, I can't quite remember. I did a lot on the first series of pole dark and I did a fair bit on the last series of pole dark. But I didn't do quite so much in the intervening series or the intervening years. Um, uh, I think I, yes, I think I, oh, yes, I did do well, yes, where he takes the shirt off and burns it. Or so for the, the benefit of the, uh, of the tape, as, as they say in Radioland, uh, Mary is now just so everybody can imagine it, having her hands down low and imagining ripping off her top just at this moment so uh, you'll be very pleased to know that she hasn't ripped off her own top uh, but yeah that's some image that she's now got in her head of Aidan Turner <laughs> ripping off his own top so, uh, so yeah at least I've given that to you today Mary <laughs> yes goodness knows what was going on in my mind at that moment there you go <laughs> so where where was Poldark filmed again um, a lot of the locations the tin mines and so on were actually uh, filmed in Cornwall Okay. Um, but uh, a lot of the other locations were around Gloucestershire, Wiltshire, um, okay. and the uh, all the studio stuff. Uh, the it, a lot of the interiors were done at the uh, Bottle Yard Studios in Bristol. Okay. So 
it was all very much kind of uh, um, West, West Country, uh, which for me was great because as I live in Swindon, um, it's all fairly easily accessible, apart from Cornwall, of course, where we all had to go down and stay in Cornwall. Yeah, not quite as far as Guadeloupe, though. So. Quite as far as Guadeloupe, but you still mm. it's still tricky to pop home for the weekend. That is very true. Now, something else you worked on very quickly as well was Spooks. How was that? Uh, Spooks. I did the first two series of Spooks. Um, started it off with a, a very good friend of mine who is sadly no longer with us. Her name is Sue Gibson. She was probably one of the first female cinematographers um, to be invited to join the BSC, which is the British Society of Cinematographers, uh, and also the first female president of the BSC. Uh, she is an incredible mentor, very talented cinematographer, um, who also did a uh, a couple of uh, episodes of Death in Paradise. Sadly, I didn't do it with her. Um, she is an incredible, uh, inspiring woman. And she started off Spooks and gave it the look and the feel, which was quite new at the time. It was uh, incredibly hard work, a very busy schedule to shoot because of the way in which we're shooting. A lot of the uh, scenes were split with, so four images, if you like, four frames on the screen at the same time. But obviously each of those had to be shot separately. So you, you're shooting, um, four different images to be transmitted at the same time. So that obviously increased the amount that you had to shoot with, within, within the episode. Um, what was also interesting is that it was very much current and up to date in terms of uh, events and real life events that a lot of the time we don't know about. So it was very exciting and a little bit scary in a way as well, because there's all sorts of things that go on that we don't know about or that we're protected from. So the amount of work that goes on um, that we don't know about to hopefully protect us is 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 incredible. So I, I take my hat off to and have huge respect for, for those people. Um, so I think there is a lot of reality in those first two series of spooks than people may realize. Mm. Um, so it was, it's, it's exciting um, in, in, in that respect. Uh, nice. um, yeah, incredibly hard work, incredibly tiring. We had some amazing cast in, uh, in there and some incredible directors as well uh, that brought the whole thing together. And I think it did turn it into a pretty, you know, iconic series. I used to watch it all the time. I thought it was a fantastic series. Yeah. I I might look back on it now and think, oh, how's the focus on that scene? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, hopefully I won't you notice, notice it. it. It's wrong. <laughs> I'm sure I wouldn't notice it because therefore it'd be I'd just be involved in the uh, actual programme itself rather than worrying about how the focus is. Now, you're currently on Death in Paradise. How long have you left, got left in Death in Paradise then? Uh, well, we're very much at the beginning at the moment. We've just uh, finished our second week of shooting. And uh, we go on until the end of October shooting, apart from a little two-week hiatus in the middle. Um, so there's still a long way to go, yes. Long way to go. And I don't know how the industry works, but do you kind of have your next project planned after Death in Paradise? Or is it kind of 
Back to Death and Paradise season eight? Oh, my goodness me. Um, no, quite often uh, you can be sitting at home one day with a completely empty diary. And then an hour later, the, the phone goes, uh, are you free tomorrow? I, you know, you, you think the phone's never going to ring, you're never going to work again. And then suddenly it'll all take off again. So it's completely unpredictable. It is quite nice to have things planned out. Um, so it's it's kind of a catch-22. It, it, it's nice to have the surprise, but you can't, you cannot plan or predict your life at all. So you never know. I always assume that every job I'm doing is my last job. So do you know what you're going to be doing after Death in, Death in Paradise? Um, coming home and doing some dancing. I coming hope. home and doing some dancing. <laughs> well, my next like job, I have no idea. And if anybody, uh, I'm always grateful if anybody rings me up and wants to work with me. I'm always grateful. <laughs> well, you sound like you'd be lovely to have on set. So... Uh... <laughs> You'll be all good. Well, we're going to have a quick break for the uh, for some music again. Uh, when we come back, it's, as always, to finish off the interviews, that all-important quick-fire round. So we'll be back with Mary Kite after this. Now, during our chat that we were having whilst we were in between links for the radio show, here's a bit of extra for you on the podcast. So Mary started talking about working in the BBC and going back to a particular project which is all about Alzheimer's. Like, for example, when I was at the BBC, I'd be allocated to a job which you think is going to be just awful and depressing. And it turns out to be the most inspiring thing yeah. you've ever seen. I mean, we did a thing about, um, before everybody had heard about Alzheimer's, we did a thing about dementia and the carers. And you think, oh, God, we're doing a thing about dementia. It's going to be awful. It's going to be hell. But it was the people that we, this was a documentary thing, the people you you meet who are, just incredible uh, you, you think these people you just meet so many interesting people that are for, you know formidable you think how do you manage with this and how do you stay up being how do you keep your humor and how do you how do you analyze things in your brain um and another woman i met in uh russia in moscow when uh they were sent to serbia and her husband died out there of exposure and she was obviously from the you know elite society and there was a picture of her when she was 21 by this fabulous car and she survived you know in temperatures of minus 30 minus 40 and you know we interviewed her and she was completely her face was completely lined really deep lines and yet her posture she was upright and she was proud and she still had, she spent most of her life, you know, out in, in, in not Serbia, out in, um, oh, in northern Russia. You know, when they, from the, yeah, when the bureaucracy, they... I know where you're on about. You know what, you know what I mean. Anyway, my, 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 brain, my brain's gone. Um, and she was, this was uh, in Russia, in Moscow, and it was, uh, you know, days of perestroika, and she'd bake you know, cookies for us and she was a perfect host and she was still proud and she still, she still had her breeding and she was an incredible woman even though she'd suffered unimaginable things and she still had her pride and her and her grace so yeah I, I've met some wonderful people Siberia Siberia that's it not Serbia Siberia yeah um so I yeah I've my days in the BBC meant I was privileged in in meeting incredible people. That it's just yeah, mind-boggling. 
and people survive and people maintain their dignity through the most adverse things. Made locally in Bath, this is Radio Bath. So we're back now with our last link with the lovely Mary Kite. And this is, as always, the quick fire round. Now, the guests don't know what these questions are in advance, except for the very first one, which is the same all the time. So, Mary, what is your favourite ice cream? If I was going to have ice cream, it would have to be either Madagascan vanilla or, oh, yeah. or coconut. Good choices. Very good choices. Uh, are you tidy or messy? Mm. I'm not massively messy, but I'm not overly tidy. But I'm very good at tidying up afterwards. Okay. It looks tidy where you are, but is that Zoom tidy? Uh, well, you're looking outside, so <laughs> you're not seeing the rest of the room. And no, it, it's, it's tidy. It's tidy. I, 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 hate, I hate chaos and clutter. That's my brain. Fair enough. Do you love or hate roller coasters? Oh, God, I love them. You love them? Good. Yeah, What's your favorite oh, roller coaster. Scared, but love it. Oh, the one in Blackpool. Okay. Oh my god, yeah, the adrenaline rush on that. Brilliant. Yeah. I haven't been back to Blackpool to go to the actual fun fair. I've been there for dancing, but not for the fun fair for probably 40 odd years now. So um, so yeah, I must go back just to go to the fun fair actually. Yeah. At some point very soon. Uh so excluding social media, messaging services, no music. Do you have any apps or games that you play on your phone or computer? A while away oh, I am addicted to, um, I can't remember what it's called. Let me just have a quick look. It is called... She's singing as well. Yes. It's just called uh, Wordscapes. Wordscapes. Yes, I'm at quite a high level, which shows you what a sad git I am. Okay. Um, oh, well, I will, I will get to that and I will say I play Homescapes. Oh, not I think it's in the same same ilk as wordscapes, possibly. I, maybe not. I don't know. It's a bit like doing anagrams. So you're given oh, okay. the letters and you make words out of them. Oh, no. So no. It's the way you kind of see the words and rearrange them in your head to make to make the words. Oh, fair enough. Homescapes is completely different to that. So. Okay. But yeah, <laughs> but wordscapes, quite a good, wordy type game. Fair enough. Do you make your bed in the morning? Oh, God, yes. Has to be tidy. Yes. Fair enough. Neatly done. Good, good, iron good. my sheets, iron my pillowcases, iron everything. And are there any cushions on your bed? One. One, you allowed one. Um, <laughs> what is your favourite breakfast? It's actually something I make myself. I make my homemade granola and then mix that with a good quality muesli and have that with um, coconut milk. Uh -huh. All sounds very, very healthy. If you had to... What is your go-to karaoke song? Oh. It's one of two. It would either be Kirsty McCall. Which one? Um, uh, so, uh, um, the one with the with the football results. I forgot the name of it. Go on, keep going. I'll try and find it out for yeah, you. Yeah, try that. Uh, and it's England to... A New England. Is no, not, not New no. It's fairy tale of New York in the England to Columbia Nil. Okay, I don't know. Oh, England to Columbia Nil. Oh, there we go. I'd never heard of that before. Oh, it's a cool one. It's a cool okay. one. England to Columbia Nil. Right. Well, that's the and I always ask this follow up question, but 
Nobody ever does. Will you give us a burst now? Oh, you shouldn't have kissed me. She got me so excited. And when you tossed me out, I really was delighted. So we went to a pub in Belsize Park. I witched on England as the skies grew dark. Oh, you shouldn't have kissed me because you started a fire. But then you turned out to be a serial liar. You lied about your status. You lied about your life. You never mentioned your three children and the fact you have a wife. Now it's England too, Columbia nil. And I know just how those Colombians feel. Oh, I want to applaud you. <laughs> You're the I first person to do it. I can't remember the words. Oh, you did it very well. I'm generally just sat here. I'm just bowing down to you, Mary. So, uh, so yeah, fantastic. Thank you for that. That's made my day. <laughs> really has. Um, favorite, and you can go away from Death in Paradise. You don't have to say that, okay? But favorite TV program or film? Oh. Queen's Gambit. Yeah, that was really good, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah really good. Yeah, I watched that. The other, it was, that was just beautifully, yeah, beautifully shot. Uh, I mean, I can mention a whole number of others, but that's the one that's uppermost in my mind at the moment. Fantastic programme. And last question for you, Mary. If you came back in your next life as an animal, which one would you be and why? I'd probably have to be a cat. That is the classic answer. So cool. They don't care about anybody else. They do their own thing and they're, they're just so full of their own self-being. A cat is the most popular answer. That is, is it really? It's yeah, the first week, we, had, we had a dinosaur a couple of weeks ago, which was quite amusing. Um, but uh, yeah, a cat, I, I love, yeah, I think it's a brilliant answer. Yes, they just yeah. lounge around. Yeah, take you or leave you. Yeah, that's just amazing. Mary, you've been amazing today. Thank you so much for coming on and spending time with us, chatting about your history and career in TV and film, and currently working on Death in Paradise, and of course about dancing. And uh, yeah, I hope you've enjoyed it. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. I could probably just chatter on for hours. <laughs> no, it's been absolutely brilliant. We hope to see you back here on Radio Bath at some point in the future. And I look forward to another wonderful dance with you, Richard. When you're back in the UK, we'll have to do that. Or you can, of course, invite me out to where you are right now. Either way is good. Always welcome. Mary, thank you ever so much. Thank you. Bye-bye.